And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast. We'll be looking ahead to the draft. We're some three weeks away, wherever that might be. It won't be Las Vegas. It might be read from Goodell's living room. We don't know at this stage, but the Texans still have holes to fill. 32 organizations find a way. We're joined by Chad Forbes to have a look at the Texans draft. And welcome to another edition of the Turn Up For What podcast, talking Texans straight from the Great British Isles. We are joined by Chad Forbes at NFL Draft Bites to talk some Texans and the, the draft that's coming up supposedly in three weeks' time. Chad, how are you doing? Getting close to draft, so it's exciting time and excited to talk some football with you. Yeah, it's, um, it's a strange time right now, isn't it? I think really it's um, how you survive in the current situation in New York. Yeah, it certainly is a strange time, and uh, we're getting through it, and uh, it's good to have football to take our minds off of it, even if it's only temporary. Yeah, that's right, and I think it's been a, an odd free agency, if you think about it, when all the all the moves that have gone on, many of them still to be confirmed subject to medical, players can't travel, independent doctors trying to make their way out to uh, to, to give an analysis of the player and and uh, and certain players' contracts holding off, uh, different language being inserted. Michael Brockers, most infamously, with the Ravens not going through. What do you make of all the all the uh, the tweaks and changes to contracts based on the situation? Definitely, you know, unique situation with the teams not being able to bring guys in for medical, and uh, they're trying to get the job done. But you just saw Eli Apple's deal void yesterday with the Raiders, so. There's definitely some complexities the team have to address, and that even applies to the draft with the medical retests being a voluntary process this year. So teams are definitely a little more ambiguity in the process, but hopefully it'll uh, lead teams to trusting more of the tape than necessarily uh, the other factors. Well, that's right. Do you think this year, and I've seen this quoted quite a number of places now, do you think it's possible that this year we will have a situation where people will, people in the front office, scouts, GMs, etc., up across all 32 teams are going to have to base their evaluation purely on tape, and then some small interactions based on the, you know, based on uh, FaceTime, Skype calls, etc., to try and get to know the player because all the top 30 visits are off this year. Uh, there, there's there's uh, there's limited interactions. The pro days can't can't uh, uh, you know adjust combine times. The combine times were all off this year due to the how the days were spread out and the workouts, so they, they can't really be compared. So it's a bit of a difficult time, I think, with the front office. That on uh, and that coupled with the fact that uh, most of the people might not be in their own buildings in their own war rooms where they're trying to make these decisions come come uh, April twenty first. The feedback you're getting is the Skype conversations with prospects have actually been viewed very positively. And next year, if you know, assuming everything's back to normal, I think you're going to still have Skype and being able to interact with the prospects in that format uh, continue. And as you said, the combine this year was a little bit different, having it in prime time. And I think one of the real positive takeaways, if there's anything from the current situation we're in, is so many guys made the decision of I'm not going to work out at the combine because, you know, I don't want to be out there late at night. I haven't eaten. I'm not going to be ready. I won't perform up to my peak. So a lot of guys made what I would call business decisions of saying I'm not going to work out and wait till my pro day. So I think one of the real positives is that the guys that went out there and just competed didn't, you know, make business decisions. The teams have confirmed numbers on them, and that'll be very positive for their draft stock. So that's one of the takeaways that I have initially. But you're hearing that the teams are complaining about, 
you know, the process right now, but you know what I mean? It's like, I think one of the real responses you've gotten to people that I know in the league offices, it's not like these guys hit on draft picks, even when they have all the time in the world and access. I mean, the hit rate's probably 50%. So maybe it'll be even be higher this year when you take out a little bit of the over analysis. Yeah, that's right. I think every year, and you see so many teams do it, they overthink themselves, try to de- develop an image of a player that's probably not there. And uh, and you see some some high busts or high round pick busts going. Um, in terms of in terms of this uh, draft chat, how do you how do you see it going? Uh, do you still think it's all full steam ahead? There'll be no changes. It'll just be business as usual over the three days. The memo sent out by the league office said basically that if you criticize us for going forward with business as usual, you're going to be you know fined or penalized in some way. So. That was pretty unique. That's a little bit of a uh, kind of you know, Roger Goodell basically saying, I am the almighty, and I support Roger Goodell. I think that the things that we can do in this country now or in this world that don't require, I guess, you know, large clusters of groups, if things can be done over the Internet and with technology, it should be business as usual. And it will be a great way to take our mind off of the current situation, even if it's only for, you know, three nights in prime time. Yeah, that's right. You think I've seen definitely Adam Schefter's been an advocate of potentially extending it over a number of nights to to give the world a distraction from you know the the current plight that it's in. Uh, but we'll wait and see in terms of how that how that kind of kind of works out. Um, obviously, you're going to got to feel for the players, right? If they can't uh, celebrate with their families and all the the people that you know their high school coaches and all the people that got them to that point over probably the last you know six six eight years. Uh, to to become a you know a high high round pick, you got to feel for for the guys individually, I suppose, not to make it. But ultimately, they're still you know they'll still be accustomed and you know they'll still be brought into the league just as they would otherwise. Um, but you know, obviously, season dependent if it goes ahead. So, in terms in terms of this draft class, Chad, how do you if you had to sum it up? You know, what what would you, certainly there's been a lot made about the the, the depth at wide receiver, the the upper end talent at tackle how would you sum up this draft class and what do you expect uh it to it to look like um you know in the initial couple of rounds yeah very solid offensive tackle class there's you know six to ten six probably first round values maybe four depending on how you view the second tier guys like a josh jones and austin jackson but there should be i guess 10 tackles taken in the top 100 which is a pretty good season compared to most and you know when somebody says that it's a great wide receiver class one of the comments that i've heard is that means generally it's not a very good class overall. And the way they look at it is the corner group, it's got a CUDA atop, but beyond that, it's a pretty weak group. And, uh, you know, there's not really a first-round safety in this draft. There's a couple of good off-ball linebackers. And the pass rush group outside of Chase Young is, is pretty weak. So it's, you know, not a great draft class. Good quarterback group, a lot of intriguing guys, five to six guys that should go in the top three rounds. But overall, you know, I hate saying this because it's like such a cop-out to say, oh, it's not a strong draft class because, Really, it's beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But it's an overall pretty good group. It's a good year to need an offensive tackle. And if you need a wide receiver, as you mentioned, you're going to be able to find one either on the first day. There's some really good players at the top, but there's depth throughout. And that's uh, that's a pretty good, exciting situation. And you saw that play out in free agency where the wide receivers had some trouble finding money because I think a lot of these teams are saying, we're going to find a young guy in the draft. Yeah, and infamously, the Texans have – decided after some of the reports that were out this week have decided to step away uh, from DeAndre Hopkins. Again, another trade that's not finalised. David Johnson coming over in the opposite direction as part of that trade. Uh, what do you what do you think about, firstly, about that trade and how the league is potentially viewing wide receivers in a different light and a move away 
as I saw you tweeted out the other day, a move away from the the uh, the possession type guys towards the uh, toward towards a need for speed on the perimeter. You know, look at DeAndre Hopkins when he's on the field without Wolf Fuller taking the top off the defense and dictating coverages, and his production is you know significantly down. And you got a player that's you know maybe 28 years old starting to ask for you know 18 to 20 million dollars a year wants to be one of the top guys, played guys in the position. You know, the only part of the deal that I really didn't like, I would have taken the the compensation he got if I didn't have to bring back the David Johnson contract, but maybe Bill O'Brien knows something we don't. And, you know, it's really trendy right now to criticize Bill O'Brien's or call him a Patriots you know, style dictator. I kind of applaud him because he's doing it his way, right? If he goes down, it's going to be his guys, the way he envisions his team. And he's, you know, spent a lot of money in the last, I would say, eight to 12 months. They brought back, you know, guys like Nick Martin and Merciless and Bradley Roby, even the kicker they gave a pretty good contract to. So eventually you have to start making decisions about, you know, who's worth keeping here. And uh, that's all in line with the idea that you're going to have to pay Tunsil and Deshaun Watson. And, you know, what I would say with Bill O'Brien is he's 52 and 44 as a head coach, five out of six winning seasons, right? And you take out that one, four and 12, 2017, the guy's 48 and 32. So for all the criticism of Bill O'Brien at this point, you know, he's had a successful track record back to his days, you know, with the Patriots and even on to Penn state where he changed the culture. So if he can find a way to hopefully replace that production from Deandre Hopkins, whether that's, through a combination of David Johnson, Duke Johnson in the running get back game. And I think Wolf Fuller, if he could stay healthy, wow, he could be a great player. They got stills. And as you mentioned, it's a great wide receiver draft. And they've got picks at 40, 57, 90, 111. So they should be able to get, you know, a wide receiver there that can hopefully come in and make an immediate, uh, immediate contribution. And talking about those picks, uh, Chad, in terms of, in terms of potentially second or third, or even sort of later value in the draft, is there particular guys that you think that could that could come in and, and uh, you know be a nice blend of possession plus speed uh, that the Texans need to complement? Probably Will Fuller and assuming Randall Cobb starts in the slot for the for the offense. Yeah, I think you're, you're you hit the nail on the head there. I think they got frustrated with Kike Kute just not being able to stay healthy and on the field, and obviously they got the same situation with Fuller, who's in a contract year, and still you know he's going to make seven million dollars this upcoming season. So wide receivers obviously in need, and uh, there should be a good one there at 40, but I think you got to find a guy who can win outside. And one that I really like is Arizona State's Brandon Ayuk. I think he'd fit great, unbelievable after the catch. Really, the, the sky is just, it's pointing up for him, the arrow. So I really like his fit. But, you know, K.J. Hamler, if they could get him into that offense, they might be a little concerned because he's an undersized guy and probably a slot. What I think you're going to see is the guys that can win outside, the, uh, the bigger wide receivers that can get off press coverage and then they're going to go ahead of the guys who are probably slots only. So, you know, a guy like uh, Denzel Mims might make it to 40, the Baylor wide receiver. But ultimately, I, I don't think they're necessarily locked into taking a wide receiver at 40. They've got other issues they've got to address, especially at the pass rush. They need to find somebody opposite Whitney Merciless. You know, Martin came on a little bit, the player they brought back in that clowny deal late in the season. And Brendan Scarlett, to me, is really a role player. So really a, a, a weak side linebacker to compliment Merciless. God, I really like for the Texans is Josh Uche from Michigan. They've also done a lot of work on Florida's uh, Florida's Jonathan Greenard. Bradley and Nye maybe in the third round would be an option. So they've obviously got their areas they've got to focus on, and the secondary will continue to be an emphasis You know, as they rebuild that group around uh, Bradley Roby, Vernon Hargraves. You know, it, it needs a little bit of an upgrade. So I think that they're, they're really situated well with the three picks between 40 and 90 to go kind of best player available that kind of fits their needs, and the board should fall pretty well for them. And uh, just taking taking the first part of that answer, Chad, in terms of uh, possession receivers, Colin Johnson from 
uh, just up, the, up along the uh, along the uh, freeway in uh, in Austin. A guy who I thought in his his previous year in college looked like a, a real uh, a real world beater, and then I thought last year he he probably didn't quite live up to these his form he did the year before. Do you think he's someday in play for the Texans in terms of just you know just being able to box out uh, corners, you know, go up and high point the ball and and uh, make catches in the red zone and uh, and be a possession receiver. Do you think somebody like that is in in for the you know so maybe the, the mid to late rounds for the Texans? Is he a guy that's that's got upside, or do you think he's potentially one of these prospects that's maybe leveled out a bit in in his college career? He's not got that upside to take the next step in the pros. College guys, you're right. He's one of those big body wide receivers. I was actually really impressed by him at the uh, Senior Bowl. His route running showed some fluidity and be able to drop his hips and get open. So he could definitely be an option. I've got him more on day three, and there's some medical concerns there. But, you know, he's probably found day three because of just the depth of this wide receiver class. And most years, with years being called on day two. Yeah, and is there any any guy, Chad, you think that potentially the um, the Texans could pick up uh, late in the uh, late in the later rounds? That, and normally, uh, without, without having such depth at the position, that they could, uh, that, you know, the guys that would be normally a a second, third round player that you know that could you know come in and contribute year one. Do you think any of those kind of guys could fall to you know rounds four, five, and even six? You know, a player I'm going to have the Texans taking in my mock draft that I, I really do think fits and they'll like is Isaiah Coulter from Rhode Island, and he'll probably sit there in the fifth round as a developmental guy. It might take a year, but he could be a good one that wins outside, which is you know huge given that they just gave Cobb that type of money. Uh, Daryl Mooney from Tulane's got some speed. You know, he could be a seventh-round option. Uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones, he's probably going to go in the third round. A big body wide receiver. had a great combine. He could go uh, somewhere maybe around 90. So there's definitely a lot of guys. And it, it's just a fun wide receiver class when you evaluate it. Because just so many come to mind. Chris Fink from Notre Dame if they're looking for a slot guy. Uh, Jawan Jennings from Tennessee or Jawan Johnson from Oregon if they're looking for the big body guy. Seven, six rounds, he could win in the red zone. Really, they come in all shapes and sizes in this draft, so it's a great year for the Texans to be looking for multiple wide receivers. So yeah, so look, looking at Ed Rusher, uh, Chad, in terms of the the, the, uh, the Texans pick, is there, is there a possibility that there is another Max Crosby that the Raiders picked up a late round pick, which can come and contribute year one with uh, TFLs and sacks, um, being a late round pick coming at Eastern Michigan? After the success of Crosby, I think teams are studying and saying, why did he succeed? And if you look at his combine numbers, this guy worked out exceptionally well, especially in the short shuttle, three-cone drills. Guy that has good length and can stack and sets of physicality. So you look at the guys and say, okay, who worked out really well that has some pass rusher traits? You're talking Alton Robinson from Syracuse, DJ Woonin from South Carolina, Alex Heismith from UNC Charlotte. There's also a guy from uh, Ferris State, uh, Travis Gibson from Tulsa. They didn't necessarily work out as well. Even a kid down at North Dakota State, uh, Tezuka, he doesn't have great length like the other guys I mentioned but could be a developmental pass rusher. And then a couple of guys, a real guy that I like is Jonathan Garvin. He's still 20 years old. He's still just a young puppy. And if you brought him into the Texans, that'd be a really good fit. There's maybe some character questions, maturity off the field, but I really like him in that building with you behind Whitney Merciless. And if you could find a pass rusher in the mid rounds, you know, for four years and, you know, call it $4 million if you draft him in the fifth round, it's just a great asset because you see what these guys are getting in free agency. Merciless, for example, $13.5 million a year, over 28 guaranteed. So, Really, the the mid round pass rusher. You nail one of those, you're setting your organization up for success. Yeah, and I think every team is looking for, you know, that that ability to to break the pocket up the middle. And it's you know, and you see the value that guys like Chris Jones and 
and and and uh, Aaron Donald have on a on a on, on a defense, and the Texans certainly don't have that. Obviously, the only player they did have that DJ Reader walks out for a thirteen and a half million year deal to deal to Cincinnati. Is there any guys potentially in this draft you think they could come in and uh, provide an edge pre- or an interior presence rather uh, to to uh, to get pressure up the gut to to help collapse the pocket against opposing QBs? There's some good uh, day two defensive tackles. Uh, Neville Gilmore, Marlon Davidson, Justin Matabuke from Texas A&M. I don't necessarily know if those guys are going to provide what you're talking about in terms of pushing the pocket. It's really hard to evaluate defensive tackle's ability to rush the quarterback at the college level just because the quick passing game really limits them and the tempo of how many plays they're running at the college level. These kids are playing at 80, 90 snaps a game. So it's really hard to find. They obviously brought in Timmy Jernigan, who's more of a run stopper, and a guy that I think has some upside on the roster it was drafted last year, and Charles Amenehu, he kind of fits what you're looking for in terms of interior, interior presence of pressure because he's not one of those short, stout, stout, compact defensive tackles. He's got some size and length to him where he can push the pocket, but also if he's not going to get home, get his hands up and really disrupt passing away. Yeah, that's right. I think it's uh, you know Charles Amenehu had a good, good rookie season. Definitely looks like he's got some upside. If he can be consistent, I think, for this offense, uh, sorry for this defense rather in 2020 then he's 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 got ability to to uh to Im- impact plays on on, a, on you know on a three down basis but i think the biggest issue for charles is, is just trying to be consistent because all the traits are there uh you know big big school prospect fell in the draft well below what he he viewed himself as so yeah he, you know he's a potential you know and as as just as um <clears throat> Just as Jacob Martin on the outside is a speed rusher, so you know to the Texans need to find players to 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 complement them. Just as any any team is looking for, and the Texans perennially are looking for it, it would seem like Chad uh, outside corners and even you know even people to come and fill in at the nickel spot. Um, you know, as he said, there's Jeff Akuda right at the top. Is there any guys potentially that could that could come in? Uh, and, and you know, and and fight for a starting spot in this. If it is, if Bradley Roby is to is to play inside, or is there nickel guys you think you're higher on that potentially could allow Roby to to go to the perimeter? The two nickel guys I really like are Amik Robertson from Louisiana Tech and Josiah Scott from Michigan State. I like toughness in the nickel. I can deal with a guy that's undersized if he comes up and tackles and just has that mindset. It's really interesting because what do the Texans think they have at corner? And the rest of the league believes that they've got you know huge holes there. But they've got talent, Javon Conley and Vernon Hargrave. Lonnie Johnson had a disappointing you know, rookie year, but he's a second-round pick, and they've still got to have some high hopes for him. And then they also brought in some versatile defensive backs in free agency. So, it, yeah, it's hard to say what the, the Texans necessarily think they've got at defensive back because there's talent there, but maybe they just haven't done a good enough job of either scheming it or developing it. So, you know, do you want to go with a corner on day two of this draft and you have all those other needs? Or do you want to see if maybe like a guy like a Meek Robertson floats down to you in round four or Michael Ajome from, from Iowa? I mean, you know, Texas has some connections to that school. So he's saying Basley maybe on day three. It's a corner group, you know, a top after Rakuda and maybe C.J. Henderson. I'm not necessarily sure there's this good day one corners. I'm a big fan of Jalen Johnson. But he's got the medicalist. He's not sure if he'll land on day one. And A.J. Terrell is also a very talented player for Clemson. But, uh, you know, it's a good, a better depth of the cornerback group that people are giving you credit for. I also like Damon Arnett from Ohio State. So Noah Bonga is a tough name to pronounce from Auburn. So, you know, it's been reviewed as a weak cornerback class. I think a lot of that was just the worst got numbers on the group weren't very good. But uh, overall, I like some of the depth. 
Yeah, I think it's 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 again you can never just like you know any edge rushers and corners you can just never have enough of them on your roster because it's you know with with uh, with you know the, the the packages that defenses are running out now corners just you know so you need an endless supply of them on your on your roster whether that be special teams or or uh, or the different looks that you're trying to trying to put out there. Obviously, the Texans at this minute don't quite know, or or the fans or the outsiders don't quite know. What a scheme Anthony Weaver's going to run in his first year um, in as a play caller. On the opposite side of the ball as well, um, we've also got Tim Kelly, who's uh, supposedly going to take over the reins from Bill O'Brien and the play calling, um, and and be be in, in Deshaun's ear. Is there any, is you know apart from the wide receivers, is there any offensive players, particularly maybe an interior offensive line with the Texans or? Or um or or look looking for depth and maybe even you know God forbid another running back despite the Texans probably got the highest the wage bill uh and on on hit on the salary cap for running backs between between Duke Johnson and, and David Johnson is there is there any um any prospects that the Texans uh, Texans fans should be looking out for potentially in the interior of the O line uh, or even in the exterior and um and potentially some tailback options in the draft. Well, how do they view Titus Howard? Is he going to stay at right tackle or shift into guard in his second year? That's a question. And then they haven't made a move yet on right guard in terms of uh, Zach Fulton. They're keeping around at $7 million. That's non-guaranteed, so they could be looking for a guard. And it kind of hints to me that they might be looking at something because they also haven't released the player, uh, the depth option they signed a couple years ago, uh, the kid from, I think, UCLA. So I think they could be looking at the interior offensive line. And the success of Max Sharping, Last year really was an underrated part of that team. He really helped to, with Laramie Tunstall, upgrade the left side of the offensive line. And so now they've got to kind of shift focus to the right side and sort out, just like they didn't have to do the defensive backfield. And I don't think, as you said, the public or the fans are really going to know what they think about these players because there isn't enough, there isn't really enough information on how they feel about Titus Howard going into year two. I think he's a tackle, but they can they count on him there? And if not, do they start to look at a you know, guy that can maybe play right tackle and shift into right guard? So, you know, offensive line is obviously a focus. And, you know, they drafted the kid in the third round last year at tight end. I still think that's a big need. And Jordan Thomas, an interesting player. They've got another, another couple of tight ends. They've obviously brought back Daniel Fowles. I think a guy like Cole Komet makes it to you, say, at 57, the Notre Dame tight end. you got to take a look at him. I'd also be looking at the Dayton guy, Adam Troutman. Maybe think about the idea of you know, being more of a two-tight end offense. But yeah, that probably doesn't work for Bell Watson. I'm probably just, you know, thinking out loud here. So I think it's more of a wide receiver move, uh, you know, maybe uh, – as I mentioned, only some of those guys that'll fit Brandon Ayuk, uh, Jalen Rieger probably won't make it to 40. But uh, you know, I'm not necessarily sure they love their group right now in terms of Kenny Stills. How long is he going to be around? You know, is uh, is they going to bring Will Fuller back after this season if he's healthy? So you know, they could be going into 2021 right now with maybe just Randall Cobb and that wide receiver group. So that's obviously, as you mentioned, really got to be a huge focus. Yeah, that's right. I think yeah, Stills in the last year of his contract, he was a big. Probably a big surprise for most people, I think, in terms of the his uh, his play and his production that he gave. He was in the top five of all wide receivers in terms of average yards per catch. So, you know, stills you know provided a bit you know, much needed value, I think, in that trade for Tunsil, and he's he's been definitely been a a welcome addition to the team. But you've also got to you know consider the perennial injured Will Fuller. He's a he's probably a Pro Bowl wide receiver one uh, when he's healthy. Uh, but he's he's not managed to do that, and it's it's almost boring talking about it now from a Texas point of view because I think everybody knows and he knows uh, when he's on the field, and if he could be on the field for sixteen games, he's he's a player that could win you you know your fair share of the sixteen regular season schedule. So right, yeah, there's so few guys in the NFL that 
make us and Will Fuller, I'm not going to tell you he's the best wide receiver in the top five in the NFL or even better than DeAndre Hopkins. But when he's on the field, he scares defenses, he dictates coverages and game plans. He's a, he's a guy that if he can stay out, this could be a huge season for him. Or as you mentioned, maybe he only plays, you know, four or five games and is a lost one and he leaves next off season. I think the variability on potential outcomes with his future is, is probably wider than maybe any other player in the NFL. Yeah, I think that sometimes that also, you know, probably mirrors the same with this Texans team, I think, doesn't it? It's, uh, you know, losing probably your arguably your best player on the or your most consistent and high end production player on the field, um, and then I think that that gives you know the 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 floor and the ceiling of your potential record uh, as a team probably the biggest va- you know gap of variance that that could potentially you know come into this season. So it's it's definitely a it's definitely a, a position position of need. In term in terms of uh, Chad, in terms of some of the the prospects that you've picked on, have you got some guys that you're you're really big on in your your uh and and you you know if you were in a war and you'd be you'd be banging the table for you know I really like the kid from Memphis named Antonio Gibson. I really think he fits today's game. He can be a run run the football out of either a spread or an eye back offense, but also be a spotter outside guy with really impressive speed. And I think the ability, whether you know, kind of the Patriots system over the years, being able to dictate how a defense plays you, you know, if you can get personnel that can play multiple positions, you start to put some stress on the defense. So I love Antonio Gibson from Memphis. Austin Jackson from USC, the left tackle. I think he's a first round pick all day. He's probably not as ready as some of the other kids. He had some surgery last offseason actually. I think provides some stem cells to his sister who was battling uh, battling a sickness. So he had a, a senior, a junior season. He's only 20 years old, where it wasn't exceptional on tape. But you just see all this talent. Uh, Jack Driscoll, guard tackle from uh, Auburn, a UMass transfer. He reminds me a lot, actually, of Max Sharping. And uh, I think he's going to go on day three and provide some value. Uh, Gabriel Davis, the wide receiver from UCF, and uh, everybody's crush Antonio Gandy Golden. I like both those guys. So you know, everybody has their man crushes in this draft. I'm also big on Anik Robertson. And uh, that's really rare for me. I mentioned him. He was a nickel from Louisiana Tech. He's at 5'9", 175, soaking wet. Um, I don't normally love small corners, right? I like bigger guys. I don't want to – I think you start drafting small guys, you become a small team. But Amik Robertson plays big. The dude is fearless. Uh, he plays I – mean, he fills against the run. Like, you know, he thinks he's 6'3", 250. Uh, I love that. I think he's got a huge chip on his shoulder. He could be great value on day three. I've also been one of the people that – starting to think that Jeremy Chin, the uh, Southern Illinois safety linebacker hybrid, he might be the best safety in this draft class. And that's against two kids, one from Alabama and one from LSU, who are high-pedigree, big-time recruits. And the kid from the Southern Illinois Salukis might be my top safety. I'm not necessarily sure yet, but uh, it, it's really close. And uh, some of the tackles I like, uh, Lucas Niang from TCU could be a third-round guy. There's some value. And uh, I'm also pretty high on Matt, Matt Hennessy, the center from Temple. So I've got my guys, I think we all do every year, and my rankings are probably a lot different than most out analysts out there. I don't really look at there. They kind of just watch the tape and say, okay, who do I like? And then try to confirm it through the combine numbers and say, okay, that's what I'm seeing. So I've got some, uh, some I guess, takes that are a little bit a little bit different. For example, I think Austin Jackson is a better player than Nessie Becton in the next two or three years. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because I think Becton is definitely traits, you know, height, weight, speedy, probably. You know, it's he's a freak in that sense, but – Ultimately, we're not asking guys to run track meets. You know, we're you know people are trying to bring these guys in their program to 
to play football and contribute a particular skill set at a position. So, no, that's an interesting take, um, Jared. Um, and in terms of any guys, have you seen out there that you have watched on tape that you just are not buying into at the minute? Because you see it every year, as you said, 50% success rate at best. I'll start with Mickey, Mickey Beckton, all right? Like, I hear some people say that one of his great traits is he's so powerful on a down block, which you down block in college football because the splits of the offensive line are so much larger due to the way the field is constructed with the hashes, right? I don't think a trait, a great trait of an offensive line is being able to ear hole a defensive lineman who's lined up inside of him, right? I think he plays way too high. It reminds me a lot of uh, Tim Dunlap or Eric Flowers. These guys were guys that play with leverage, that put them getting down and play with some strength and speed converted to power. I think they're going to give him a really hard time. I watched his Wake Forest tape, and I've obviously watched a bunch on him, but he's Wake, Wake, just get Justin Strenon from Wake Forest, give him a hard time. And Strenon's probably going to go in like the sixth or seventh round, so that concerns me. Uh, Justin Jefferson from LSU, I know he tested great. He doesn't play up to that speed, and he's a contested catch guy that's probably a slot only. Uh, I can find slot receivers if I need them. I, I need guys that beat press and went outside. Justin Jefferson doesn't do that. LaVisca Sinat, he's another guy, right? This kid's been injured every single season, right? And people said at the time, I know he had a poor performance, but that was because he was injured. I said, when is he not injured, right? Guys that are, there's a great saying that is, fat guys stay fat, hurt guys stay hurt, stupid guys stay stupid. He's hurt. He's going to stay hurt. That's an issue. I wouldn't go anywhere near him. Uh, Isaiah Wilson, the tackle from Georgia. I love Andrew Collins on the other side. Isaiah Wilson, I just don't see great moving skills. He's a big-time recruit. He'll probably go in the third round. Probably the Bengals take him Somebody that you know, looks past the fact that mobility is really important to the offensive line. Uh, where else could I go? Tyler Biotis had some terrible junior year tape. They'll probably end up going in the third round, and he's got they're going to be a boomer or a bust, which is really rare for a Wisconsin offensive lineman. Uh, maybe there's another guy that I think is a little bit overrated, and that is uh, C.D. Lamb from Oklahoma. The way the league yeah, valued you know, DeAndre Hopkins, that contested catch wide receiver that doesn't necessarily get open. I see a lot of that in C.D. Lamb. He's not, he's not a big physical guy. He's like you know, six feet, 198. People say he's great after the catch. Well, have you watched the Big 12 try to tackle? They don't do it. Yeah, that's right. I think it's, um, you know, you, you touched you touched on Jefferson there. I think, yeah, that's a common a common uh, knock on him as a prospect, I think, as well, when you when you think of the, the tape from last year uh, and, and some, you know, when they're, they're trying to spread the field out, the slot is probably going to win in, in, in those matchups because the, just exactly what you said in terms of where the hashes are are, uh, are separated versus the pros. And, Jefferson, uh, Jefferson's interesting. I, I think he'll win in the slot. And he'll average, you know, 10, 11 yards a catch, and he'll make some contested catches for you. And people will probably think he's a great player, but I just don't see him getting making the big player dictating coverages. And uh, to me, if I'm going to take a wide receiver in the first round, I want a guy that, you know, as Will Fuller does, he scares defensive coordinators. Yeah, that's right. I think and why Will Fuller was taken in the first round, because you're looking for elite traits that can impact games. Um Interesting, you said Mickey Beckton from Louisville's not not a guy for you. Is there anyone that you've watched on tape and you you see a trait, possibly not to put words in your mouth, Chad, but Isaiah Simmons is one that often comes up. Is there a prospect that you've watched on tape and thought, you know, that as they say, it, it, it jumps off the jumps off the off the screen to you? Henry Ruggs' speed. Sometimes you're just like, whoa, he ran away from that defense. It's impressive. Uh, I would say, you know, Case Young took over some games. I love people that are questioning his production when he has like, you know, 16 and a half sacks. He's a really impressive player. So the guys at the top, they've, they've got great traits. I mean, Jalen Rieger, when he when he has the ball in his hands, it's pretty, pretty impressive. 
And, uh, you know, I think you, you brought it up right there, though, with, uh, with Isaiah Simmons. He's a really interesting prospect. And uh, finding how he fits is going to be really the most important factor in terms of whether he's a huge success or not. Is he a weak, I think he's a weak side linebacker. Some people think he's a, you know, a safety in a quarter defense that can come down and play the run. And uh, you know, if he gets into the wrong situation in terms of his sense of coordinator, it could really be a huge hindrance on his career. Yeah, I was listening to a couple of, uh, or certainly I've seen some rumors that you, you could potentially see him going to the Giants, which you would possibly not assume that he is a, is a fit for that. Is there any prospects that you think like that that are going potentially going to go high uh, that, that, you know, that, that need to find the, you know, that I've got the raw skill set, but need to find the right system that you could say that for a lot of prospects, but is there, you know, is there, is there, I, I think get- the most, the most dependent position on the scheme and get go to is probably cornerback. You put a corner in the wrong system or maybe a safety in the wrong role. They're not going to succeed. And that's why you see teams take chances on guys in free agency and say, I can bring him over and put him in a different role because he's talented and he'll succeed. So, yeah, C.J. Anderson, if you try to put C.J. Henderson from Florida, you try to put him in a CUDA, these are man corners. You try to put them in a zone system, they're, they're going to get lost. I think Henderson's kind of more of an off-man than Prescott, but he's going to be drafted probably into a press system, and I'm not necessarily sure he's physical enough to go on experiments. So that's one. Uh, Christian Fulton from LSU, I, you know, I've got concerns about his ability because he lacks great length, and uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Darquise Denard in a sense. I think he could be overdrafted. Uh, it's, it's all about fit with the corners and even the safety. You know, you ask a box safety to play, you know, on a too deep shell, he's not not going to succeed. You ask a single high free safety to come down into the box, for example, like the Bears did with Ha Ha Clinton Dixon. You know, he looked lost. He doesn't tackle, and they had him playing, and they covered three. You know, trying to come down and make, you know, be an edge edge setter. That's not going to work. So scheme dependent with the defensive backs, and uh, that'll be a huge factor. And I also think with some of the offensive linemen. Tristan Wirfs, he's a, he's a zone guy. He might be a guard. I don't know if he could succeed in the man's gap system. Becton, you know, he might be able to succeed in his own system. They did a little bit of that at Louisville. And uh, but my favorite tackle in this draft is definitely the Georgia kid, Andrew Thomas. Right. It's interesting because it's, it's between uh, the kid from Alabama, Willis, and I think Andrew Thomas. You've got a bit of worse in there. It's a, you know, it's a question whether he's a guard and... I think Beckton's a wild card at the minute. So yeah, no, it's interesting. I think it's like you said at the wide receiver spot. It's it's pick your flavor ultimately. Um, yeah, I th- it was funny you touched on the corners there. I think he, I think back to last year when it was at the draft in terms of uh, DeAndre Baker. He was a guy coming out of Georgia, picked high by the Giants. Obviously, they had three picks in that round. Didn't necessarily have the greatest rookie year. So yeah, I think he's a good example of uh, of, of what potentially you need. To, you know, it's, it's all about fit and scheme. Yeah, and, and, and Baker's interesting. Baker's interesting because they tried to ask him to play. You know, every team mixes up their coverages. But when they asked him to play zone last year, the kid got lost. Later in the season, they asked him to play just exclusively man, and uh, he played. He was much more successful. So it, with corners, it's just so important about scheme fit. That's why I look at a guy with the Texans, like Lonnie Johnson, and I ask myself, is maybe part of the issue that he's not in the right system? Yeah, you're right. I think when, when it was sort of, sort of sold to the fan base, if you like, he had all the traits. He was a Juco transfer, Lonnie Johnson, and he, he potentially, you know, he had all the traits there. Developmental prospect. He's, de- he's you know, he's been quite public with his workout with uh, with quite an infamous uh, um, play, uh, trainer in the Footwork King who's based out of Houston. Um, a lot of kind of NFL prospects have been with him. So you're hoping he's going to make 
that year two jump, which is you know is, is historically the biggest jump you see in production and on film of of prospects that, that, that can take the next stage. Whether that will be Lonnie this year, I don't, it's it's difficult to it's it's difficult to say. But I think the Texans definitely need 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 him to do that. But but uh, whether he will or not, I don't know. A lot of the times he was played, you know, in inside, you know, in the playoff game he played against uh, Travis Kelsey. He got necked up early and didn't give his best showing but again it's it's all about you know I think as you said I think less of this year will be uh you know predicated on drafting traits and and upside and it might be more on film just because the teams probably haven't had that close proximity to to get in next to prospects and find out what they're all about and 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 get that comfortability with them if if they've not seen it on tape yeah I mean 100 percent and it's interesting in the cornerback group there's also Jeff Gladney from TCU Maybe the Texans will be a little weary because he's just had some surgery, but I watched him on tape and I said, wow, he reminds me a lot of Brandon Flowers, who Romeo Cornell coached in Kansas City, and uh, he could be an interesting fit there at 40. The cornerback group is really interesting because it's like, you know, every team, you know, you look at, say, a Minnesota, what kind of corner they like compared to what Jacksonville will look for, and it's like, you, know, you could set your own board in terms of being, you know, a draft analyst and say, these are the best corner tricks who I like. But realistically, you know, your eighth corner could be number two on the Vikings board. The only corner position, I think, maybe where, you know, any team would say Afud is the number one corner, maybe some teams like Henderson. But after that, you know, throughout that group, down to even like Noah Bonnegay from Auburn, it's like beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, you're right. I think and it's, I think the way in which the league has changed in which they're trying to trying to flight coverages, uh, you know, in, in the modern game, I think it's definitely, definitely it's, it's all about scheme fit and that becomes more evident as it's, as uh, as the years go by and the games developing as, as a passing league. Um, in, in in terms of uh, in terms of trades on draft night, do you think do you see this draft being a potential uh, one for people moving up moving up of the board, particularly night, uh, night one and early night two? Do you see possibility for that? You know, every year we see somebody come up for the quarterback, and uh, I don't see that this year. I think that there's too many question marks on. The guys like Tua, Herbert, I don't think anybody's falling in love with Justin Herbert. Now, Jordan Love had a really terrible season. So I don't see the teams flying up the board for the quarterbacks. And this thing that I think will happen in the first first top 10 picks, I think it's going to be run on tackles. You're going to see one of the defensive tackles probably go, whether that's Derek Brown or, uh, or Javon Kinlaw, most likely Brown, because there's some medical and character questions on Kinlaw. And then it'll be, you know, the top three guys, Akuda, Simmons, and Chase Young, plus Burrow. So, you know, where Jerry Judy goes will be interesting. There could be some moving around, I would say, around like 10 to 14 for somebody trying to get up for a wide receiver. I've heard Minnesota is looking to move up the board. You know, but I don't necessarily think this is going to be a huge group for trades. And one factor that I would say is part of that is your know, teams are not together right now. They're, you know, obviously social distancing in their own home, trying to make do over technology. And uh, so that makes it a little bit more difficult and less conducive to discussing you know, trades. And, and what's really interesting is I was talking about this with somebody who's been an executive in the NFL, and he said, you know, trades, the way they develop is you start talking to somebody, you start talking basic parameters pre-draft in terms of the big trades. This is the guy that's moved up the board. And he said, then you go out with your guys, you know, whoever your top lieutenants are, maybe the owners with you, and you guys start to have a few drinks, a conversation about, is it worth it for us, right? So they're not being able to congregate and really have that kind of come to Jesus moment of, does this make sense for us? Might, uh, might be less conducive to guys being aggressive and moving up the board. Yeah, that's right. And I think as well, I think you've kind of got an interesting dynamic this year that possibly there are trades out there that could be made, uh, but, you know, to, 
to bring veterans in on draft night. It doesn't happen as much. It maybe happens on the, the lead-up. We saw that uh, last year uh, with uh, Frank Clark going over from the Seahawks to uh, to the Chiefs and then going to win the Super Bowl. So there's potential for, for teams to, to trade away capital to, to bring in sure sure things. And that's a trend that's that emerged. Okay. Here's a trade I think could happen. I think the Jets sitting at 11, right? All the offensive tackles they like are gone. Okay? The wide receivers, maybe Judy's there, maybe not. But they trade down with Denver. Denver comes up for the wide receiver they covet. I think that's Henry Ruggs. The Jets pick up a third-round pick, and they send that to the Redskins for Trent Williams. So the Jets address veteran left tackle situation with Trent Williams. They move down the board, and they don't really part with any draft capital in the process. Yeah, I think it's a possibility. I think... In, ter- in terms of that, but yes, you said operationally on the night, it's it's difficult. Um, one guy I've seen you tweet about, Chad, is is and there's still some kind of big name free agents out there, and there was also a guy, Shelby Harris, which I really liked, and I thought potentially was a fit for the Texans to come to come in and and contribute on the line. You saw the D, the defensive tackle market drop bar the the deal that Green Bay handed out. Um, in, ter- in terms of the, the, the way in which the market shaped out and also Jadavian Clowney still out there, not quite found a, a home yet, um, possibly because teams can't bring him in a medical, again, another interesting dynamic in this 2020 free agency. Um, do you see any of these guys making an impact or finding a team before the draft or could they potentially be in a yeah, with, with Clowney, with Clowney, people have been scared to pay the kids since he was in college. They've always thought he's about the money over really a love for the game. He's not... Uh, yeah, Whitney Merciless, whether you pay him, you know, twelve and a half, thirteen million dollars a year or two million dollars a year, a million. He's a football player. But Clowney, uh, a lot of people just think he loves the money, as you mentioned the medical questions and the production, even though he's a disruptive player, hasn't been off the charts. It's really interesting to see where he lands. And, and what you're seeing with the Seahawks is they're trying to say, Come back at our price or we're gonna go get Nagakwe or we're gonna sign Everson Griffin. So they're definitely trying to play in the leverage game. And as the price drops, and you hear an agent come out and say, We're looking for sixteen to seventeen million. To me, that says I'm at $15 million one year. Can you do it? So this market's dropping precipitously, and it could continue. Logan Ryan's still after. He's a good player. He was asking for $10 million. He overshot his market. I think Shelby Harris is also in that boat where he went out there and thought he was going to get $10 million. The way, say, Jordan Phillips did from the Cardinals, and uh, the market wasn't there for him. So the first wave went. People spent their money, and uh, he was the guy without a chair. And the agent was Rosenhaus in this situation said, shoot, I missed, right? Because what happened there was Rosenhaus actually poached him. He had an original agent, and Rosenhaus came in and said, I can get you more money in free agency. I can help market you. And he went with them, and, and that was obviously, obviously a mistake. I also thought the cornerback market fell apart. And it's such a trend-driven league where people look at the Chiefs and say, oh, Tyreek Hill, he's so fast, he's great. Let's go get Henry Ruggs, right? We don't need the contested catch wide receiver like a DeAndre Hopkins. We want Ruggs. You're going to see the same thing at corner where – Teams are saying, wow, the Chiefs just won a Super Bowl with Bashad Breland and an undrafted free agent, right? We don't necessarily need a great corner. We can dictate what happens there by scheme. Yeah, no, you're right. I think it's a copycat league, and you continue to see that uh, year on year, and it'll, be, it'll certainly be, be interesting to uh, see how draft night pans out uh, if it does. Chad, is there anybody you think uh, that we've not covered that you think the Texans should, or, or any positions potentially that the, the Texans should be looking at if they're, if they're going to um, you know, secure Bill O'Brien's prolonged future as it seems despite his, 
he's uh he's continued uh, power grab in 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 the organization do you think there's any anything else he should be considering to to fortify this roster for 2020 inside linebacker is really an interesting situation for me because you got Cunningham on a uh, on a contract here in a walk. Uh, Bernardrick McKinney is obviously under contract, and I think Cunningham is probably the better player, but can they afford to keep him? That's interesting to me. And then we just don't know what they think about their safeties. Do they love Tashawn Gibson, Justin Reed? How do they feel about that position? You saw him bringing Jalen Watkins for depth. He's a good touch teamer in free agency. But is there a need really at safety? Uh, you know, the Texans, are, I guess it's fortunate, but also kind of a, a weakness where they can go best player available and they'll be filling a need. And the needs aren't like, you know, they're not going to not be competitive if they don't get a pass rusher in this draft. They could probably piece together with, you know, the kid Martin adding another veteran. But uh, they could really just stand to upgrade that area and then also the wide receiving core. Yeah, I think it, I think certainly inside linebacker is a is an issue. There is some rumours or some talk of, you know, if, if they want to sign Cunningham, can you have two inside linebackers on your roster? Uh, on double digit, you know, million dollar contracts, potentially, potentially not. Uh, I think that as well. There's definitely Justin Reed has uh, has, has come out in the in the media in the last day or so, um, saying that he's definitely petitioned Bill O'Brien to sign his brother uh, Eric, who's who was released um, from the from the Carolina Panthers last year, despite you know breaking many records and having a great season, certainly statistically. Yeah, you know, I think that what you're seeing in Carolina is Matt Rule is just changing the culture. You know, he's bringing in his guys, and he doesn't want a vocal locker room presence. He wants to try to establish in a way, uh, the Baylor way you call it, but it's really a kind of a Tom Coughlin Patriots way from that old tree of disciplined fundamental football. You saw that in the guys he brought in. So maybe he does fit uh, Eric Reed. Uh, not just Eric Reed, actually made a huge issue about the NFL changing portions of CBA, which is really and a story that hasn't gotten any discussion, which is really huge. Uh, I could see him being a fit. I, you know, I could see Logan Ryan coming in. He, he's a you know, Patriots-type guy. He's down to $7 million. Maybe he makes some sense. But, you know, there, there's obviously some good free agents that are still out there. And I think what, at this point, you know, you just wait and you see what happens after the draft. Yeah, and on that point, Chad, just fin- finally, um does Eric Reed have a point in terms of the the language change from the CBA from the point of agreement to to the the final documents have been sent over by by the by the players' association? Is he right on that? One hundred percent, one hundred percent, he's right on it. I mean, they they made an agreement and they changed language in it that impacts former players' um, compensation for disability. I mean, I'm normally uh, I'm not like you know one of those people like most in the media or I'm not really in the media. But, that's you know, unequivocally pro player. I see both sides of the stream, but uh, what the NFL did there was just really sleazy and egregious. Yeah, and is that effectively taking money away from a certain technicality of former players? Is is that is that what what the grievance is? Yeah, it's like basically it's disability compensation for players pre two thousand fifteen, based on an offset from social their social security payments. I'm not going to pretend that I understand all the complexities of it. But uh, one guy that's been complaining about it is a former Jet linebacker, Eric Barton, mentioned it. Uh, so it's impacting former players. And uh, that's, uh, let's, let's be honest, it doesn't matter what business you're in, you don't make an agreement and then uh, change it without really notifying any of the relevant parties. But, you know, the, pro- the, real, the real problem is, though, that the NFLPA, led by you know, DeMar Smith, and I say led loosely because I think he's done a horrible job, he agreed to the change. So 
I see Eric Reed's point, and, uh, but I don't think the NFLPA will really push forward in that uh, in that area. It seems very strange uh, that the that the NFLPA have have given away probably their biggest proportion of leverage, which was the seventeenth game, for just simply you know you know you know give versus take, not much back in return. Um, it seems a bit of a head scratcher. What's interesting is that the NFL owners are always like five steps ahead of the players, right? So last collective bargaining agreement, it was the players of the crude seasons, the veterans saying, we don't want these rookies making more money than we do. And what they did by that was they basically turned 204, or maybe, you know, 150 kids a year coming into the league into minimum salary players, right? So over the course of a three-year agreement, you just added 450 minimum salary players Combined with all the practice squad guys, now they've given them the right to vote to. That's you know, 300 players, 700 guys in a league where you could basically just buy their vote with $100,000. So the league's always one step ahead of these guys, and they just don't have much leverage, right? Like, I mean, what, what, what's, um, you know, what are players going to do to make the kind of money they can in the NFL if it's not playing, you know, playing? And uh, so I thought the collective bargaining agreement, the players didn't do a great job. They got some concessions, but as you said, a uh, 17th game for like you know less than two percent of revenue growth is uh, it's a little bit of a uh, a giveaway by the players' association. Yeah, you think so, and then possibly the added caveat as well of the the fact that that 17th game will in all likely likelihood be on a neutral ground uh, or a neutral venue. So it's it, it seems perplexing in the sense that the the PA would agree to something that is not necessarily in their interest. But what I can't quite get my head around, Chad, is the fact that they've agreed to the length of, of deal and not had a break point in it. You know, what's going on right now, you see with all the streaming services, is the cable operators in terms of the traditional distribution channel are under huge pressure. You hear about cutting the cord all the time, right? So for the NFL right now to ensure it's like long-term viability they need to get and also for by the way the cable operators to ensure they they keep up as clients um the 10-year deal makes getting a 10-year deal lets them get a really long-term deal with the cable guys and you're also going to see them do some streaming stuff you just saw the the playoff games are going to be distributed on nickelodeon so you know i think that any uncertainty in labor would have really hurt their ability to negotiate with you know, the cbs as nbc espn's of the world and get really which is the you know the the bread and butter of the NFL, which is that big TV contract. It's an unstoppable business, probably, and the players are, you know, your average two and a half to three years impact on the league, and you know, many are gone. So, yeah, I think as you said, one step ahead. And See, like if, you, if you gave an opt out, so you gave an opt out to the players after five years, right? Then when you're sitting down and negotiating with the television guys, right? If the players opt out, they can opt out, right? So what happens if all of a sudden these guys can't afford your rights anymore? All of a sudden you're like, yeah, a little bit screwed in a sense. So I, I understand the length of the deal and the labor piece to be helpful. But as you said, they, the players really, they didn't get a lot in terms of concessions. But, you know, the players who you call the rank and file, the average guy, they, they got some pretty good, uh, pretty good sweeteners. Yeah, that's right. And there was a big percentage of players that didn't even turn out to vote in for whatever reasons. So, you know, it wasn't a huge margin. Uh, that, that it... You know, a lot of it was, I think a lot of guys didn't know they were eligible to vote in terms of the practice squad guys. Right. Um, and then a lot of guys on those practice squads also hadn't paid their union dues. So they actually weren't even, you know, guys making $8,500 a week, say he was on a roster for four weeks. 
he made $34,000 last year. Uh, he didn't pay his student dues. Um, so he wasn't eligible to vote, actually. So there are some complexities there, but, you know, obviously the, the voter turnout, and we here in America, we were impressed the NFLPA's vote was actually larger than our turnout in that presidential election. Well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. I think it's interesting. I think I, I, I mean, from my point of view, and I've kind of followed, you know, the Texans for the last just, you know, just coming up for a decade now, and you, you do notice the difference uh, in some of the quality of play, particularly the tackling um, that that seems to erode every season, and that's just determined by the fact that they just don't have enough padded practices like they used to. Now, and you know, we're all for player safety, but. And you know, and the last CBA eradicated the middle class of of players. Do you think the CBA? And this is my final question, Shannon. Is does the CBA have the have the ability to potentially eradicate that middle class even further? And the fact that there's less, sorry, less padded practices eradicate the quality of the product on the field. The quality of the product on the field, even when they had the padded practices, people complained about it in September. Is it getting worse? Probably. I also blame the college game having less practice, even down to high school. We're not teaching fundamentals anymore. We're, you know, doing a lot of, you know, seven-on-seven passing game stuff, but not necessarily teaching kids how to tackle. That's that's an issue down to high school and and down to Pop Warner, frankly. Uh, With the idea of the middle class of players, one real big concession the CBA, and you saw a couple teams use it, was they put a veteran exemption in that isn't part of the salary cap. So I can give a guy a minimum contract, which counts less against the salary cap with a big signing bonus but also add a million, uh, 1.25 million to his compensation. You saw the uh, the, sorry, the Cowboys re-signed uh, their center, Joe Looney, to that deal. And, uh, you know, for a guy like Joe Looney, who's you know, been around the NFL for a long time, he's probably made, I would say, coming into this by five or five or six million dollars in his career in the NFL. Um, to be able to get, you know, 2.4 million instead of a million, uh, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, I could see why guys like him say, wow, this CBA really worked out for me. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, we might, uh, you know, after you know, after all this, you know, you never know how how the the current situation will uh, will pan out. And do we have a season? Do we have a reduced season? We don't quite know at this stage. Um, uh, on that on that concept, before I go, sure. If I would say the Carolina Panthers or the New England Patriots or somebody like that who has a lot of patience in terms of building their team, I would be doing everything I could to get my hands on the Bengals first round pick next season. But the idea that if we do not have a season, that'll be the Trevor Lawrence. Pick. Yeah. I think that still did probably be legislated for, isn't it? That if the season doesn't go yeah, ahead, that'd be a classic Belichick move, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think to outsmart everyone else and be, and be the last man. Belichick trades his entire draft for Trevor Lawrence, right? <laughs> yeah. You'd uh, hate to see it. Cause I think it's every neutral, uh, or any fan of the other thirty-one teams has probably had enough of uh, of Kraft and and that uh, and that franchise being at the at the Super Bowl in the in the late stages of the season. But they're there for a reason because they outsmart people. So yeah, I think yeah, it was it was nice this year to have some new blood in the game. That's for sure. And maybe next year we'll get to see your Houston Texans with Deshaun Watson and Bill O'Brien uh, down in the big game. So. Thanks for the time, and uh, hopefully we we'll do this again. Maybe we we'll come on after the draft and break down how the Yeah, I certainly, I certainly don't think we'll ever get there with uh, O'Brien, but certainly there's a, a chance that Deshaun will take us there. But yeah, absolutely, Chad. We'll need to follow up after the draft. And thanks very much for your time. I hope you and the, everyone, everyone concerned in the New York area is keeping safe. And I will speak soon.
You too, back in England. Thank you.